hey what's up this is gloria and this is women's only so today we're going to continue the conversation about abortion but we're going to look into the actual arguments and explore how perspectives have changed over time normally we hear about pro-choice and pro-life but i want to go a little bit deeper than that and really look at how the narrative has changed So way, 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 way back in the day, I'm talking about 19th century and really the second half is when we start hearing about the idea of banning abortion. This mostly came from people in the medical field, which at first glance, you'll be like, why? This is something that you would think people in the medical field would be interested in because it's a medical procedure. But really, it has to do with sentiments at the time and even then, what you're going to hear in the next few minutes kind of mimics some theories that we hear going on now, right? So there was this growing concern about diversity due to colonization and the sudden interest in the decline of American quote-unquote birth rates. So you even had people talking crazy and making statements like, be filled by our own children or by those of aliens. This is a question our women must answer. Upon their loins depends the future destiny of the nation. Wait, (laughs) like all of a sudden women have this humongous responsibility to carry on American tradition by making sure they populate the world. And what better way to make sure they populate is by limiting their options when it comes to being able to terminate a pregnancy. People are crazy. Anyways, this complex and fear of becoming the minority by these quote-unquote Americans prompted restrictive laws and bans to be put in place. And they basically stayed pretty much the same in most states up until the 1960s, which again, we covered that in episode one where we talk about Roe versus Wade and how that came about. So again, this whole idea about a concern for this growing diversity and what's happening to, you know, mainstream white America, Anglo-Saxons, white people, Caucasians, whatever you want to call them. Um, So this growing concern of their rates declining is something that we hear happen now as well. Um, I know specifically when Alabama passed this highly restrictive ban on abortion, a lot of people on social media started discussing the sentiment shared by white supremacists and how this abortion ban is combating the extinction of white people. I mean, look, diversity is going to happen regardless. Um, That's one of the pillars of survival of the fittest, right, of natural selection. It's diversifying our gene pool to make sure we have the, well, let me not say make sure, but the whole purpose of natural selection is to make sure we survive and the best way to survive is by being able to expose ourselves to all the possible tools out there. And we can only do that by mixing genes. So I don't understand what the hoopla is, but then again, I'm not from the culture, so I'm not going to understand, but whatever. So yeah, so most of the stuff stayed the same practically up until the 1960s 
um, you know, when we had Roe versus Wade come about, which we discussed in episode one. Now, that ruling of Roe versus Wade was met with both equal parts, support and discord, right? People have a strong, 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 strong opinion when it comes to what it means to give birth and when life begins. So that's when we really see these pro-choice and pro-life movements take off. Now, pro-choice consists of anybody who believes that the choice of having a child or having an abortion is up to the woman who is actually pregnant. This is backed by the ruling of Roe versus Wade, and you see a lot of support from liberals or people who have liberal values. So most recently, you have Tiffany Haddish, who canceled her performance in Atlanta over the heartbeat bill. You have Ariana Grande, who donated $250,000 to Planned Parenthood after her concert in Georgia to support them and their efforts when it comes to supporting women and their ability to make choices over their own bodies. You even have media giant Netflix promising to withdraw the filming in the state if the actual heartbeat bill goes into effect in 2020. So as you can see, people try to use their power to support what they believe in. Okay, so if you're not familiar with the heartbeat bill, it's basically this bill that bans abortion procedures once a heartbeat is detected. Now, that normally happens around six weeks of pregnancy. Specifically in Georgia, since we're talking about what's going on there and how people are promoting their pro-choice views, um, there is an exception for death or any serious harm when it comes to the mom and needing to terminate the pregnancy and in a case of police reported rape and or incest. Now, the fact that it's police reported is definitely going to burden women um, just because we already know how culture tend to mute women and their experiences. Um, so that's a whole nother discussion for another time. But either way, this bill is definitely unnecessary um, and needs to go. All right, so let's talk about the other side. Now, pro-life supporters rely heavily on religious beliefs and some tend to use scandalous claims about abortion providers, including Planned Parenthood. Now, this side of the argument does tend to be a little bit more out there when it comes to their antics. They're known for their protests and using fear tactics when it comes to promoting their anti-abortion rhetoric. In some cases, these protests have gotten so out of hand that they actually affected the abortion providers. So this prompted the FACE Act of 1994 to be signed by President Clinton. And basically what it did was it made it a felony to obstruct, threaten, or intimidate entrance into abortion or reproductive health clinics. Now, this was introduced after the death of Dr. David Gunn in 1993. He was murdered by an anti-abortionist who basically yelled out something to the effect of, don't kill any more babies, right after he shot him three times outside of his Florida clinic. Now, this was the first U.S. doctor to be killed in an anti-abortion demonstration. In the same year, 1993, you have a doctor by the name of George Tiller, who was an abortion rights activist and a late-term abortion provider, 
who was actually shot in the arms as he was driving outside of his clinic parking lot. The woman who shot him was named Rochelle Shannon from Oregon. She was basically in town to demonstrate at this anti-abortion protest. There's also some reports that say that Dr. George Tiller had his clinic firebombed back in the 80s. So this is more or less his second time, if not even unteenth time, getting tried by people who didn't believe in abortion services. Moving forward, you have John Britton, 1994. He was actually shot in the head outside of a women's clinic in Florida while he was sitting in a vehicle wearing a bulletproof vest. A volunteer security escort was also with him and they were killed in the same manner and another person who was there was shot in the arm. This was done by Paul J. Hill who used a 12-gauge shotgun. He was a known anti-abortion protester and actually a former minister of two conservative Presbyterian denominations who actually advocated for violence against abortion doctors. 1994, you also have John C. Salvi III, who opened fire with a rifle inside clinics in the Boston area and ended up killing two receptionists and wounding five others. 1997, you have a clinic in Atlanta bombed twice, and there was an hour between the blasts, and this injured seven people. Following year 1998, you have a bomb explode outside of the clinic in Birmingham, Alabama, and that killed an off-duty officer and critically injured a nurse. This was the first fatal bombing of a U.S. abortion clinic. Now, in the same year, you have Barnett Slepian. He was shot and killed while he was sitting in his kitchen by a sniper using a rifle who was actually hiding near his swimming pool in the backyard of his home in New York. Now, this was the first of five sniper attacks on abortion providers between 1998 and 2002. Now, I hate to bring up Dr. George Tiller again, but he was actually killed in Kansas while serving as an usher at his church in 2009. And you guessed it, he was killed by an extremist, an anti-abortion extremist by the name of Scott Roeder. Now, he was shot once with a handgun and even after his death, you had protesters like those from the Westboro Baptist Church who were picketing outside of his funeral and they were holding signs like God sent the shooter, baby killer in hell, so on and so forth. In more recent news, back in 2015, so literally less than four years ago, because this was in November, a mass shooter killed three people and injured nine outside of a Colorado clinic and the claim that he was a warrior, or I'm sorry, he was acting as a warrior to the babies. So I hate to be Debbie Downer and just talk about all the negative stuff that has been a result of these movements, but it's important, right? People are really out here dying over their jobs, over what they do, over their beliefs. And it's very unfortunate. Um, I think a lot of it stems from our culture and our I guess our belief that we are not able to have these type of discussions um, because this extremist action comes as a result of people trying to prove a point and our culture perpetuates this idea that we must fight for a seat at the table 
as opposed to it being an open table where anybody can pull up a chair. So it's important. It's important to be aware of what's going on. And we don't have to agree, but at the very least, we need to have some type of human dignity and respect people's positions. You ain't got to have an abortion if you don't believe in getting an abortion, but you can't force other people to believe in what you want to believe in. And you can't strong arm somebody into believing something. Okay, so moving away from that, moving away from pro-choice and pro-life, um, a side I wanted to also look at is what about the men, right? Should men have a say? I did a little research on my Instagram and was asking some people some questions that came up through other conversations I had, such as, should there be some type of legal documentation to protect men from child support? If at the time a woman gets pregnant, she's able to get an abortion, they let her know, look, I'm not prepared to have a child. I would like for you to get an abortion, but she decides to keep the baby anyway. Should there be something that protects him from her filing child support in the future when he told her at a reasonable time that he w did not want to be a part of this journey, a part of this child's life, whatever the case was. I did receive some mixed reviews. It was kind of split. Some people felt like, yes, there should be. Others felt like, no, if you made your bed, you got to lie in it. Um, but the majority tend to basically say like this consequence should be expected so you shouldn't even be surprised that this was an outcome now let's flip the situation what if a man wants full custody so what if a homegirl gets pregnant she says you know what I'm not trying to have this baby I'm not ready but he's like look I really want a child I don't believe that you should get rid of it um, you know, it's just as much yours as it is mine's. So how about you have the baby, carry it to term, and once you have the baby, you can sign full custody over to me. You don't have to worry about anything. Should that be something that should be discussed again? Should he try to convince her to change her mind? Should she really take it into consideration or is it ultimately up to her? Most people said it was ultimately her choice, um, but people did believe it deserved at least a second thought. And I think just in general, communication is key. And before you even get in these type of scenarios, understanding that who you're with and what their expectations are and what their normal course of behavior is, is going to be extremely important for these life-altering and changing decisions that can come up. Now, I also asked a couple, like, basic questions just to get a feel of how people felt. So, I also asked, is a woman obligated to tell a man she's pregnant? The majority actually said yes, um, with the exception of some situations. I think that I think that if we're going to push for equality, I think that we need to understand that pregnancy is ultimately a woman's choice, right? 
um, because it has to do with our body. We ultimately are the caring mechanism for this child. However, I do think that there is a shared responsibility um, in having a conversation with the father of that child. You didn't get pregnant alone, so it wouldn't be fair to not include the other party unless you deem that situation not necessary or a potential burden on your decision. And you know me, I got to make stuff fun. So I wanted to throw in some monetary questions. Who should pay for the plan B? Who should pay for the abortion? I was actually kind of surprised. The majority of people said it should be split between both the woman and the man or specifically for the abortion, it should be the person who doesn't want the baby. Now, why? Why bring up the men? I think, I think it's important. Like, I think that if we're going to continue to push for equal rights, then we all need to have a conversation. We all need to be included in the conversation. And too often I see this conversation being had with men at the forefront making the decisions, but with no actual dialogue as to what their roles are in this situation. So I'm curious to see the more I dig into different topics related to women, how men feel like they contribute and influence a woman's world, I guess. Or what they believe their roles are in a woman's world. Obviously, I'm not a man, so I can only do so much in terms of sharing men's perspectives. Um, ultimately, I'm going to be biased because I don't have my own male perspective. But I want to do my best to be thought-provoking and get people to consider other sides because too often we forget that the world is much bigger than us and it's easy to live in our own heads and understand where we come from 100% but be confused by everyone else. So we need to start asking questions and we need to start being more inclusive to really understand and progress. With that being said, I've noticed that as we continue to have these discussions as well, um, pregnant women actually don't really get a lot of coverage when it comes to the discussion. I've noticed that we normally hear about pregnancy through the perspective of a man, of a father, of a doctor, but we don't really get to hear about pregnancy from a perspective of a mother. Now, I know that was really brief, but I wanted to go over what the different conversations are when it comes to abortion and the reasoning behind why people do what they do and support what they support. Um, obviously, I'm pro-choice, so I'm a little bit biased when it comes to pro-life, but as you can see, pro-life has had some wild characters who have come through and done real harm and you know unfortunately have killed abortion providers that's not to say that pro-life is a bad thing 
these are cases of extremists. I'm pretty sure for every thousand pro-lifers, there's two extremists, whatever the ratio is. However, we still need to be aware that this is something that's happening and it needs to not happen at all. So stay tuned. Next episode, I'm going to be talking about Planned Parenthood. That's a big one. It's going to be real juicy because I know a lot of people have heard wild things about Planned Parenthood and it's very, very necessary to understand their history and also their current mission. So thanks for tuning in. I'm signing off. This is Gloria and this is Women's Only.